Freud Museum. Um, for those of you who don't already know me, my name is Oliver Bedard and I'm the curator here. Just a few housekeeping things before we begin. If you haven't already, can you please switch off your mobile phone? Um, I'm not just being pedantic, it does actually interfere um, with some of the recordings that take place in the room. I hope that many of you would have already seen the Louise Bourgeois exhibition at the museum. Um, for those of you who haven't and were hoping to see it tonight, before the event, to apologise um, that you weren't able to do so, but you should now be given a free entry to return to the museum and see the show before it closes on the 27th of May. The Freud Museum is extremely proud to be hosting the return of the repressed, an exhibition to which Louise Bourgeois gave her consent before her death in 2010. As many of you will know, um, a larger version of the exhibition did tour in South America to three venues in 2011, um, but the Freud Museum exhibition is its first UK venue it really is quite a different exhibition, it includes uh, quite a number of works that haven't been shown before. As you'll perhaps know, the exhibition is based on the discovery um, of two boxes of writings by her long-term assistant, Jerry Gorovai, at the beginning of 2004, and another two in early 2010. And together these constituted an archive of over 1,000 loose sheets, recording her reactions to her psychoanalytic treatment from 1951. And they offer a fascinating insight into the life and work of Louise Bourgeois. Accompanying the exhibition, we have an extremely exciting programme of events that aim to shed further light on the many issues and themes raised by the show. And I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Deborah Levy tonight, a novelist, playwright and poet. She's author of four novels, Beautiful Mutants, Solemn Geography, The Unloved and Billion Girl, which won a Lenana Award. Her anthology of short stories, Pillow Talk in Europe and other places, described as the best kind of modern writing, were broadcast on BBC Radio 4, as was her acclaimed ten-part dramatisation of Carol Shields' last novel, Unless. Her plays are collected in Levy Plays 1 and have been performed at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Court and the ICA. From 2006 to 2009, she was the AHRC Fellow in Creative and Performing Arts at the Royal College of Art. Uh, during which time Louise Bourgeois was just one of the many parts of her research there. Swimming Home, the real topic of tonight's event, was published in 2011. It was described by uh, Guardian journalist John Self, and he wrote, Deborah Levy has made something strange and new, spiky and unsettling. In Swimming Home, home is elusive, safety is unlikely, and the reader closes the book, both satisfied and unnerved. Tonight, Deborah's going to be talking about the influence of both Louise Bourgeois and Freud on some of the many themes found in Swimming Home, and reading passages from the book that reflect some of the ideas found in The Return of the Repressed. So just to give you some idea of the format, Deborah's going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then she's going to open it up to the floor for questions. So please join me in thanking Deborah. Thank you very much for coming. Well, it's the end of April, so we should really be outside on, on that table in the sunshine with a bottle of wine. Um, I think that's the ideal reading, isn't it? Um, tonight, I am going to talk about some of the themes in the work of Louise Bourgeois and how, um, and, and my connecting conversation with them in my most recent novel, Swimming Home. So some of you will have seen the exhibition. Can I just ask how many have? So, so, 
Okay, so, so, so most of you. Um, I think that Bourgeois would have liked it because she always said that as a daughter, the dramas of her parents' home um, took over her own family house, kind of squeezing her out and leaving her very little room. And it's well documented in that kind of soap opera way that her father was having an affair with her governess and brought this woman who was his lover and his daughter's tutor to live in the family house and that her mother tolerated the affair. Well, Louise Bourgeois spills the beans on what's supposed to be a secret domestic drama, rather as Dora does in Freud's case history, fragments of a, 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 the Dora case history, fragment of an analysis of a case of hysteria. Bourgeois has said at various times, you either die of your past or you become an artist. I don't know where that leads. <laughs> She's also said, uh, for me, the present destroys the past every day. And um, her image or metaphor for the ways in which the present destroys the past every day is, um, or one of them, is she makes a, a scale model of her childhood home and she poisons a guillotine <laughs> just above the roof. So the uh, past cut very deep for Louise Bourgeois. One uh, fairly hostile male critic, and I, I really do love this review of her uh, Charité Modern, uh, had this to say, her work is so violent it would be better suited to the London dungeon. <laughs> if he hadn't been quite so stupid, it's almost like a Freudian thing to say, quite a clever thing to, quite a clever thing to say. Um, yes, uh, Bourgeois does dig in the dungeon, as it were, to find the corpses, uh, to find who'd done it, to find the treasure chest and uh, all the rest of it. In her own words, art is a way of recognizing oneself, which is why it will always be modern. And then just to confuse things for anyone who thinks we just have to kind of feel things to become an artist, she lays out how a fair bit of skill is needed for art to transcend various autobiographies and subjectivity. She says, I'm not what I am, I am what I do with my hands. So if the family house was a place of betrayal and secrets, the child Louise is placed in the middle of these painful adult dramas and she is a reluctant voyeur, not really knowing where to look. And we see how she places mirrors around the edges of various, uh, various artworks so that we too glimpse the backs of things, the backs of heads, and we glimpse ourselves looking in. I reckon then that uh, I'm guessing that she, it would please her to think that she would one day take over the house of the father of Cyprus.
Francis. Daughters do tend to want to take over the house. I'm not sure what Anna Freud would have thought about Louise moving in, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so if Louise Bourgeois had a kind of um, <clears throat> extra Oedipally difficult or failed romance with her father, she gives her mother a bit of an airing too, and we see the spider, uh, the spider sculpture she titles Maman, sitting very comfortably in Freud's garden. And um, she has written about how the maternal web is both a nurturing home and a deathly trap. I think a lot of children would agree with that. In my novel, Swimming Home, I also present a character who is a philandering father, and his daughter, Nina, 14 years old, is placed in the centre of this drama. But of course, the sexual portrayal is not the only drama. It's a cover for a bigger historical trauma, and it's a cover for more mysterious dramas. Uh, Nina's mother seems to have colluded with her father um, because the mother has invited a fragile, beautiful young woman called Kitty Finch, who seems to have stalked her husband, who's a famous poet, to um, France, where the family are on holiday. And what does the mother do? She offers this young woman, who appears to be a bit noisily mad, a spare room. So she invites her right into the house, or to put it another way, right into the deathly trap. So this is all very bewildering for the child. Some bargain has been made, or something is being tested. Um, and I guess my game is to take quite a familiar story um, and hitch a ride on it and ask no, not so much what it is these characters desire, but what it is they are doing to protect themselves from the things they desire. And if this sounds um, a little mysterious, um, I don't really want to give away the plot, but I hope it will become a bit clearer later. So the first uh, two pages that I will read from Swimming Home, uh, is titled Fathers and Daughters. To give a little bit of backstory, uh, the philandering father, the poet, Joe, um, also known as Josef Novogrodzki, uh, is Polish, born in Poland, grew up in Britain, Jewish. He's described in many ways in the book, the asshole poet, post-Holocaust poet, a philandering poet. Um, this young woman, Kitty Finch, appears, she's, she's arrived, his wife's given her a room. Kitty Finch fe feels that she's in telepathy with Joe in some way, that she can read his thoughts. And she's arrived with a poem called Swimming Home that she wants him to read. And everyone um, watches Kitty Finch quite carefully in the novel, the two family friends who, who are sharing this holiday, 
and she becomes friends with the daughter, Nina. And there's some fear that Kitty Finch might harm Nina. And when Nina disappears, everyone imagines the most terrible things that might have happened to Nina. The things that Kitty Finch might have done to Nina. In fact, they find, uh, they find Nina in bed with Kitty Finch. And this is, um, this is the, what happens just after that. Fathers and daughters. So his lost daughter was asleep in Kitty's bed. Joe sat in the garden at his makeshift desk, waiting for the panic that had made his fingers tear the back of his neck to calm as he watched his wife talking to Laura inside the villa. His breathing was all over the place. He was fighting to breathe. Did he think Kitty Finch, who'd stopped taking Siroxat and must be suffering, had lost her grip and murdered his daughter. His wife was now walking towards him through the gaps in the cypress trees. He shifted his legs as if part of him wanted to run away from her, or perhaps to run towards her. He truly did not know which way to go. He could try to tell Isabel something, but he wasn't sure how to begin because he wasn't sure where it would end. There were times he thought she could barely look at him without hiding her face and her hair, and he could not look at her either, because he had betrayed her so often. Perhaps now he should at least try to tell her that when she abandoned her young daughter, that Isabel, his wife, is a war correspondent. Perhaps he should at least try and tell her that when she abandoned her young daughter to lie in a tent crawling with scorpions, he understood it made sense of her life to be shot, more sense of her life to be shot at in war zones than lied to him in the safe, lied to, to by him in the safety of his own home. All the same, he knew his daughter had cried for her in the early years and then later learned not to because it didn't bring her back. In turn, the subject turned and turned and turned regularly in his mind. His distress, his daughter's distress, brought to him, her father, feelings he could not handle with dignity. He had told his readers how, when he was sent to boarding school by his guardian, he used to watch the parents of his school friends leave on visiting days, Sundays. And if his own parents had visited him too, he would have stood forever in the tyre marks their car had made in the dust. His mother and father were night visitors, not afternoon visitors. They appeared to him in dreams he instantly forgot, but he reckoned they were trying to find him. What worried him most was that he thought they might not have enough English to be understood. They would say, is Joseph, my son here? We have been looking for him all over the world. He had cried for them and then later learned not to because it didn't bring them back. He looked at his clever tanned wife with her dark hair hiding her face. This was the conversation that might start something. 
or end something, but it came out all wrong, just too random and fucked. He heard himself say, do you like honey? Yes, why? Because I know so little about you, Isabel. He would poke his paw inside every hollow of every tree to scoop up the honeycomb and lay it at her feet if he thought she might stay a little longer with him and their cub. She looked hostile and lonely and he understood it. He heard her say, the main thing to do for the rest of the holiday is to make sure Nina is alright. Of course Nina is alright, he snapped. I've looked after her since she was three years old, and she's bloody all right, isn't she? And then he took out his notebook and the black ink pen that had disappeared that morning, knowing that Isabel was defeated every time he appeared to be writing and every time he talked about their daughter. These were his weapons to silence his wife and keep her in his life, to keep his family intact, hostile but still a family. His daughter was his main triumph in their marriage, the one thing he had done right. Yes, 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 she likes honey. Yes, 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 she likes honey. His pen scratched these words aggressively across the page while he watched a white butterfly hover above the pool. It was like breath. It was a miracle, a wonder. He and his wife knew things it was impossible to know. They had both seen life snuffed out. Isabel recorded and witnessed catastrophes to try and make people remember. He tried to make himself forget. title of the exhibition is The Return of the Repressed, and in my book, Joe is very keen for the historical trauma he represses with some difficulty. Um, not to return, he'd rather have purchased a one-way ticket to uh, a beach somewhere and crack coconuts. It's interesting then to think about how uh, bourgeois states, I need my memories, they are my documents, and interesting to think about this in relation to Freud's four lectures, um, the, the first four lectures he gave in America in 1908. It's um, always stayed in my mind, this, uh, this particular lecture, because it was uh, given to the lay people of America. And um, someone in the audience asked Freud, said, uh, Professor Freud, what is a repression? And um, I was very touched by how Freud painstakingly tries to kind of unfold this weird new avant-garde theory of the unconscious. And he, he gets quite performative. You have to remember, you know, he had a, a, <laughs> a medical training and had dissected 400 species of eel. And he says, well, okay, um, let's just say that I'm trying to give my lecture and this person here uh, is uh, interrupting me and they won't stop and I can't give my lecture so I ask that person there to escort him out. 
out of the room. And just to make sure that he won't come back, uh, I asked for the door to be locked and for a heavy chair to be leaned against the, the door. And I continue to give my lecture, but that person starts to tap. <laughs> the door starts to shout, and I can't continue. So the only thing I can do is unlock the door, take the chair away, let this man come in and to have a conversation with him. <laughs> Louise Bourgeois, uh, though, she, she doesn't have a polite conversation with the repression she's unrepressed. She has a fight. And because she's a genius, we have to remember she studied geometry at the Sorbonne. And she had learned to sew at a very early age because her parents had a tapestry business. In fact, she saw the needle as a object of psychological repair. <laughs> um, she, she had no problem saying really very unfashionable things in the art world to the uh, art students who came to her various salons to show their work. She said, well, what's it about? And uh, one sweet young female student says, oh, it's about the torment of being a, a, a female artist. She says, the torment, it's a privilege to be an artist. I'll tell you what my work is about. I'm too small for my emotions. My work is all about emotions. Uh, they're bigger than I am. What's your work about? What motivates it? And these sort of poor students, you know, they really haven't been taught to, to talk about their work like that, are very, very bewildered. Um, she says, I'm a prisoner of my memories. My aim is to get rid of them. That's what my work is about. But I just think this is incredibly radical. And it's very hard to make this point, um, to not make this point seem clunky, because it is, I be truly believe, a very subtle point. Um, it's very hard, very, very hard in psychoanalysis, or in art, or anywhere else, to really tell our life as we feel it. In fact, I would wager a bet that we probably spend quite a lot of our life's energy not, not to feel things. And I want to remove this from gender, because we're not going to start feminizing emotions. Um, if we did, really tell our life as we feel it, and it's not necessarily a good thing to do. I'm guessing we'd hurt a lot of people, we'd totally mystify ourselves, we'd feel a fair bit of shame and sorrow and fury, we'd have to own up to various degrees of masochism and sadism and envy and all the rest of it. But I reckon that Louise Bourgeois uniquely did tell her life as she felt it. And this was very, obviously, there's more to say about this, as a, you know, but this was incredibly radical. Um, so, 
When I came to write Swimming Home, I would have to say that the language that Bourgeois made and the questions she asked of it, so for instance, in the early years when um, Bourgeois moved um, with her husband, her new husband, from France to New York, and she's working on the rooftop of her apartment, she starts to look at skyscrapers. And she asks this question, why don't they touch each other? That's a really good question. Um, what I was interested in swimming home, and, and as I said, uh, bourgeois really helped me kind of take my gloves off to write it, um, is what we replace feelings with. Heroin, train spotting, ideology, the way we hold a knife and fork, various symptoms that make us suffer. In my book, Nina's father, Joe, or Josef Novogrodsky, has an affair with fragile Kitty Finch to avoid his own suicidal thoughts. And here is a conversation he has with his daughter, Nina. So Kitty Finch has given him this poem she's written. It's called Swimming Home. And he won't read it. And she is in agony, Kitty Finch. She's just waiting to hear what he thinks about this poem. And Nina's on Kitty's side. Have you read her poem yet? No, no, no. So he, the day he promises to read the poem, Nina comes down to a cafe he's sitting at in the... the this is set in 1994 in the south of France and she's got a fishing net and her father's promised to take her fishing and she says to her dad, did you like her poem? And he replies, I haven't read it yet. Nina punched his arm as hard as she could. She was so nervous about you reading it, she nearly crashed the car with me in it. She practically drove us both over the mountain. She had to summon all her courage to see you. She was shaking. Her father banged the table and it jumped. Don't ever get into a car with Kitty Finch again. Do you understand? <laughs> Nina thought she sort of understood, but she didn't really know what it was she'd agreed to understand. Was Kitty Finch a bad driver or what? Her father looked, looked furious. I can't stand the depressed. He's referring to Kitty Finch here. It's like a job. It's the only thing they work hard at. Oh good, my depression is well today. Oh good, today I have another mysterious symptom and I'll have another one tomorrow. The depressed are full of hate and bile and when they are not having panic attacks they are writing poems. What do they want their poems to do? Their depression is the most vital thing about them. Their poems are always threats, always threats. There is no sensation that is keener or more active than their pain. They give nothing back except their depression. 
is just another utility like electricity and water and gas and democracy. They could not survive without it. As they walked past the church to get to the road that Joe knew led to the gate that led to the river where they would go fishing, he felt his daughter's hand slip into his trouser pocket. Nearly there, she said encouragingly. Shut up, her father replied. I think you get depressed, Dad, don't you? <laughs> Joe stumbled on an uneven cobblestone. As you said, we're nearly there. <laughs> Finally, uh, to return to the um, drama of being a mother and daughter, Nina feels abandoned by her mother, who is a journalist, a war correspondent. It seems to Nina that her mother finds the conflicts and suffering in the world much more interesting than her own daughter's suffering. And what came to mind when I was writing this was a drawing of uh, bourgeois, and it was of a, a woman with large bare breasts, a child is clinging to her leg, and she has all this milk sort of drawn in dots falling onto the floor. And you can see various films in which uh, Bourgeois sort of points to this drawing and she says, there is a diagram of the abandoned child. <laughs> uh, also in my study, I have uh, an image I really love from a former student of mine called Rose Blake. And what it is, is um, there's a, just a red square and a disembodied breast uh, filling the square. And then at the bottom of the image, <laughs> we see from the back a boy and girl just staring up at this breast. So much has been imagined for the breast, for the mother, for the maternal. Uh, it's impossible to carry such projections, although I prefer to call them imaginings. And I explore this in a chapter called Imitations of Life. And this will be the last um, section that I read tonight and then hopefully we can talk. So Isabel Jacobs is Joseph's uh, trade wife, apparently trade wife, and she's invited Kitty Finch to stay, and she decides she's not going to join her family and the friends for supper that night. She's just going to go off, and she lies. She tells them she's going off to Nice to have her shoes mended. Isabel Jacobs was not sure why she'd lied about taking her shoes to be mended. It was just one more thing she was not sure of. After Kitty Fincher's arrival, all she could do to get through the day was imitate someone she used to be. But who that was, who she used to be, no longer seemed to be a person worth imitating. She was not sure what she felt about anything anymore, or how she felt it, or why she'd offered a stranger a spare room. I'm going to miss out the next section. She, she, she drives to Nice. She meets a blind woman, a blind Russian woman, who asks her the way somewhere. And um, the purpose of that is there to be found in the book.
And after that happens, she, um, she walks for an hour. She just walks and walks, it's getting dark, and she finds a restaurant on the beach. Uh, and the beach is near the airport. The plane's taking off through low over the Black Sea. A party of students was drinking beer on the slopes of the pebbles. They were opinionated, flirtatious, shouting at each other, enjoying a summer night on the beach. Things were starting in their lives. New jobs, new ideas, new friendships, new love affairs. She was in the middle of her life. She was nearly 50 years old and had witnessed countless massacres and conflicts in the world, in the work that pressed her up close to the suffering world. She had not been posted to cover the genocide in Rwanda as two of her shattered colleagues had been. They had told her it was impossible to believe the scale of the human demolition. Their own eyes dazed as they stared into the dazed eyes of the orphans. Starved dogs had become accustomed to eating human flesh. They had seen dogs roam the fields with bits of people between their teeth. Yet, even without witnessing firsthand the terrors of Rwanda, she had gone too far into the unhappiness of the world to start all over again. If she could choose to unlearn everything that was supposed to have made her wise, she would start all over again. Ignorant and hopeful, she would marry all over again and have a child all over again and drink beer with her handsome young husband on this city beach at night. They would be enchanted beginners all over again. That was the best thing to be in life. A large extended family of women and their children sat at three tables pushed together. They all had the same brown wiry hair, high cheekbones and were eating elaborate swirls of ice cream piled into pint-sized glasses. The waiter lit candles that he had stuck into the chantilly and they oohed and ahed and clapped their hands. Isabel watched the waves crash on the pebbles, the ocean folding into itself the plastic bags left on the beach that day. The thought she tried to push away kept returning like the waves on the stones. She was a kind of ghost in her London home. When she returned to it from various war zones and found that in her absence the shoe polish or light bulbs had been put in a different place, somewhere similar but not quite the same. She learned that she too had a transient place in the family home. To do the thing she'd chosen to do in the world, she risked forfeiting her place as a wife and a mother, a bewildered place haunted by all that had been imagined for her if she chose to satin it. She had attempted to be someone she didn't really understand, a powerful but fragile female character. If she knew that to be forceful was not the same thing as being powerful, and to be gentle was not the same as being fragile, she did, she did not know how to use this knowledge in her own life or what it added up to, 
or even how it made sitting alone at a table laid for two on a Saturday night feel better. The sparklers were spluttering to an end in the ice creams. One of the mothers suddenly shouted at her five-year-old son who had dropped a glass on the floor. It was a cry of incandescent rage. Isabel could see that she was exhausted. The woman had become fierce, neither happy or unhappy. She was now on her hands and knees, wiping the ice cream on the floor with the napkins the clan were holding out to her. She felt the disapproval of the woman staring at her as she sat alone, but she was grateful to them. She would bring Nina to this restaurant and buy her daughter an ice cream with a sparkler in it. The women had planned something lovely for their children, something she would imitate. understanding her practice and then it informing the novel. What stage did it sort of come into informing the book? Did it was it there at the very beginning and was kind of part of the seed for the for the text or was it something that you already had some kind of thoughts and then it just happened to sort of play into those? Could you say a little bit more about that process? I think you know, I think all those images of Louise Bourgeois shall sort of lurk around, don't they? There's no kind of chronology <laughs> to it. I mean, I, I, I've been looking at her work for about 20 years now, and they kind of lurk around. And then um, there's also a, a, a quote on my study desk for, by Samuel Beckett. He says, I'm not on my way anywhere, I'm just on my way. And that sort of kind of you know, lurks mm -hmm. around too. Um, so I guess that, um, in a way, the book's already written in a strange way. You just have to get on with writing it. Only <laughs> <laughs> that is. For those who haven't seen the show yet, I, I really recommend you do. I reckon it's one of the, the best exhibitions in London. I'm just really fascinated by the, by the difficulties in bearing witness that you're portraying. So the the mother was a war correspondent, and yet, she, from the, especially from the passage you read, that she well, so she's there to bear witness to the suffering of others, and yet. And yet, it doesn't quite work as a strategy. From you know, just just from this last passage you read, and yet, and the husband, who's a poet, chooses uh, chooses a much more personal bearing witness, uh, closing in on himself. Whereas and that doesn't seem that seems almost a dead end as well. And at these two opposites, so she's opening to the world, to, to a common humanity, to bear to bear witness to the suffering of others rather than her family and, and he's resisting 
So he's uh, and him his poetry is almost shying away from from a similar task. This protects so there's a bleakness of quoting Beckett here <laughs> is appropriate and one thing resonates as well. Mm. Um, yeah, that contrast, <coughs> the war correspondent versus the poet and two possible dead ends yet so opposite. That's really smart because um, I think I was playing around with um, the idea that um, a poet is somehow um, somehow represents love, and the war correspondent somehow represents war. And as the novel um, unfolds, we see that question. We, we, the um, uh, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to give it away. So, so you know, uh, Josef Novogratsky, um, someone says of him, um, this is a poet with muscle tone. He could pick up a wardrobe with his teeth if he thought there was a beautiful woman hiding in it. <laughs> um, I make, uh, I, I play around with the father perhaps being more maternal than that, than the mother. Um, I um, and what Isabel bears has to bear witness to, um, and the ways in which she kind of wishes she could unlearn, unknow what it is she has bought, she has seen. Um, there was a, a very interesting female war correspondent in one of the audiences for my reading, and she had witnessed um, and uh, written about the genocide in Rwanda. And she said to me, I wish I hadn't seen it. I wish I didn't have those images in my head. If I could unknow everything I know now, I would. And, uh, and she was very moved by the war correspondence. So it was a kind of interesting conversation. That idea that knowledge is kind of good, good for us, is something that um, I was interested in unfolding to. Um, it certainly doesn't promise to make us happy. Yet it's, it's somehow necessary as well, because closing the eyes is not a. It's not it's not the way either. Exactly. And the book sort of plays with those two those two positions. Um, yes, as you said, quite understand you you wrote a play about Dora, is that right? Uh, Freud's patient's Dora. And uh, you Philip Barrett Smith, the curator for Louise uh, Bourgeois exhibition, said that one of the pieces in the show uh, the, the sculpture hanging over Freud's couch called Janus Fleury. Uh, this curator said that this sculpture was a bit like Dora's cough, <laughs> like the hysteria Dora felt from the trauma of her, uh, her father's affair as a child. Uh, or the, the trauma she felt as a child came out as a hysterical symptom as a cough. And that Larry Smith said that it was, it's analogous that. Uh, um, Louise Bourgeois sculpture was a bit like that. It, 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 instead of coming out of the cough, it came out of the sculpture. And, 
And I was wondering, Ron, I mean, do, do you think that's a... How, are you sympathetic to that reading of Louise Bourgeois' work, or how would you read a work like Janus Flurry hanging over the couch? Mm. Well, I didn't write a play about Dora. I dramatised Freud's case study drop, a case study for Radio 4. Um, Dora's cough. Um, well, actually, what Freud made of Dora's cough. <laughs> I there's some laughter there. So, so Dora's father had syphilis, and Freud reckoned that um, Dora, that the guitar, that Dora um, had to spit out, um, was her way of identifying with her, with her father's own cough, but also <laughs> with, his, with, with some of the symptoms. Um, he was experiencing um, with um, his syphilis. That's Freud for you. <laughs> I don't know what I make of it. The, the honest answer is I don't really know what I make um, of, of, of that piece. Um, I think that her um, penises, which are often not erect. There's famously the one that she carries under her arm, uh, that photograph taken by Robert Maplethorpe, which is like grinning very cheekily. I mean, if, you've got a, if you're a female sculpture, of course you've got to make yourself a penis. What else is there to do? I don't know what I make of that, except it's rather um, like a flower. It looks rather like a flower. And, um, <coughs> And the fact that it's, there are all kinds of things one could say about it hanging over over the couch, but somehow I don't want to say them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're shy, I'm sure there'll be opportunities with the to have a chat. Can I, just, I, I would yes. just like to say that I read the book and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And it was a real joy to hear you reading from us. Uh, it, it added to my appreciation of it. And I just wanted to comment, uh, apropos of knowledge, that it was um, Kishi Finch's botany and her knowledge about flowers that, uh, and the earth and everything that came from the earth that, that uh, was the center of, of knowingness or something in, in the book that, you know, it was in contrast to her sort of instability and her, you know, question about her mental state, but it was, there was something so uh, anchoring about that in the book, uh, I just wanted to Well, I'm really, out. really so pleased uh, to hear that, uh, because um, uh, the interesting thing about botany, and there are so many interesting things, but for Kitty, what was important about it was that plants always belong to families, uh -huh. and um, and so she could identify various species and who belongs to which plant family. Um, so I'm so glad that uh, that worked there. Thank you for your kind words. Mm -hmm. I think that probably seems like a good note on which to end, so uh, thank you very much for what's been a wonderful evening.